Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this afternoon from a beautiful, cool, and sunny day in south-central British Columbia. In today's program, we welcome our friend and fellow freedom fighter and conspiracy analyst, Vincent Gersies, back to the program to continue investigating the current Canadian COVID situation unfolding all around us. For those of you who have not heard the previous episodes featuring Vincent, I suggest you give episodes 48, 52, 63, and 74 a listen. Vincent is a 32-year veteran and now retired senior constable of the Ontario Police Service, and for the sake of brevity, his complete and impressive bio will be available in the show notes. Well, Vincent, welcome back to the show. Always an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. It's a pleasure to be back, as always. Excellent, sir. Excellent. So it's been around five weeks now uh, since your visit out west, um, your your first visit out west in your life, I understand. Um, I've been searching for a glimmer of hope here in Canada that our situation is improving. Um, have you any positive shifts or, or hope stories of hope to share with the listeners here today? Well, I think uh, I think we're winning on a number of fronts. Uh, quite quite honestly, I think on the legal issues, but mostly, um, I'm very very encouraged by the number of police officers that I've been dealing with and meeting who are also pushing back from all forces across the country. I would say in the thousands, the thousands that I have uh, connected with and, and reached uh, out to, um, mostly as a result of these uh, civil suits that are now being challenging these, these vaccine mandates from right across the country. And I'm very encouraged by the number of officers that I'm dealing with who are very aware of the situations that we're dealing with that are pushing back. Uh, as well as uh, having connected just recently with Daniel Bulford, the RCMP um, corporal, who is a huge component of Mounties for Freedom, and the letter that they have just recently launched to their uh, their commissioner. Uh, and, and I've read that letter several times, and I can tell you that it resonates very well with everything that I would have to say as well. So it was very well done and it, it, a very clear indication that the Mounties are now pushing back, uh, trying to get the attention of their commissioner. I know they have the attention of their commissioner. It's just a question of whether the commissioners and or chiefs across this country would ever even choose to acknowledge this type of conversation that we're getting them to engage in. But there's no question that they know. They know that we're upset. They know we're pushing back. They know that we do not agree with the policies of those organizations and the number of officers pushing back is growing substantially. And so when we're talking about policies, Vincent, are we talking about the enforcement policies of the COVID measures in general, or are we speaking specifically now about the vaccine measures? Uh, it's not just the, it's not just about the vaccine, the vaccine mandates that are uh, coming out across the country. It's the, um, the entire story, the entire story uh, indicating, uh, as, as was indicated in the letter written to the Commissioner for Mounties for Freedom, uh, all the talking points that I've been covering over the last, um, at least the last eight or 10, 10 months. These issues that, uh, you know, <laughs> here is the manner in which we conduct an investigation as a police agency. Here's how we conduct our investigations. And it's not, uh, it's not so much an, an issue of um, a medical issue. It's, a it's an issue of truth and uh, getting to the bottom of the story 
and that there are so many inconsistencies in this story and that the censorship prevents us from discussing it, talking about it and the medical profession. And that this is um, clear now, it's clear to the officers that that um, something is being suppressed and more so that this, this counter narrative needs to be discussed. It's paramount, it's fundamental to the lives and safety of Canadians right across this country and across the world. So yeah. we, we need to discuss it. We need to get the story out. We need to talk about it. We need to discuss the real science behind this. Yes, for, for sure. It, it definitely seems that Canada is a global laggard in terms of having any level of this, you know, what you're calling a counter narrative, which I would uh, uh, change that term and towards the actual truth narrative. You know, this is the science-based narrative versus the propaganda-based narrative. Um, there, There is no mainstream media outlet in Canada that is even touching any of the real science. They continue to pander the, the garbage um, that is being presented from the political class here. I mean, we have uh, the, the nightly hosts on Fox News, uh, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, who've all been covering these, uh, these, this science in, in a factual basis, bringing forward world experts to speak on the subject. Uh, and it's strange in Canada, you know, with being such close proximity to this nation that is talking about truth, uh, that, you know, that is completely um, missing from the mainstream narrative. Yeah, that's very correct. You know, as uh, as the Canadian representative for a group called Police for Freedom, which is an international organization, I can tell you that uh, it's not just Canada. It is virtually every country in the world that is having the same issue. Now, I'm mostly in contact with police officers from all across the Western nations, but there are certainly people from other nations uh, across the globe that are part of this initiative as well. And we share the same stories. It's the, the exact same thing. It's the decimation of our rights or constitutional rights or charter rights, depending on which country you're in, including uh, representatives from the US and the attack upon their constitution. And of, of course, I mean, I don't need to say the fact that this is unprecedented and we've never gone through anything like this, but from a um, concerted police community of individuals from across the spectrum in all countries. We are sharing the same story, the same problem, and uh, rightfully so, even in their countries, as in Canada, our government has not provided the information, has not provided the data to substantiate the necessity to trample upon our charter rights. So in fact, this is completely illegal completely unconstitutional. It's a complete decimation of our rights and uh, it will not stand. And that was stated very clearly in the most recent letter uh, posted to the chief of the RCMP from Mounties for Freedom. Mm, interesting. And can you uh, just touch base on some of those details uh, in that letter? Well, the, the letter is very substantial. It, it's quite long and it, it does talk about what we are dealing with, the division across the country, the the, um, the necessity or lack of necessity for the use of this um, emergency use uh, vaccination when in fact there are alternative treatments. Uh, and, and I think my big takeaway is the necessity to conduct a full-scale investigation into what appears to be substantial criminal behavior uh, taking place here in, in uh, the censorship of the media, uh, the narrative that, that seems to be uh, uh, decimating our rights and causing this division amongst Canadians. So um, th there are quite a few 
points covered on this letter. And as I said, I, I am in agreement with all of them. Now, recently, just this past weekend, um, a number of police officers across Ontario had approached me wanting to initiate a um, an event in downtown Toronto, which we did this weekend. It was a two-day event. Uh, some call it a demonstration. I would call it a, a friendly gathering, which was termed uh, freedom over fear. Uh, I, would, I would call it a truth conference. So we had a number of speakers at this event. I think we had about... Uh, about 20 to 24 speakers at this event. Uh, and uh, it was the first one that I'm aware of in Canada that was put on by the police, by police officers, active duty police officers, pushing back, letting the public know that this is wrong. We need to talk about it. We need to get our freedoms back. We need to not be afraid. And, um, you know, it's quite disconcerting that just a, a short distance down from where we had this, this uh, event, uh, back in the summertime or late fall or early fall uh, was a clinic that was set up to vaccinate younger children or teenagers um, and they were being offered ice cream in the summertime for that. You know, that's what pedophiles do. And uh, that, that was certainly a comment that was raised that, you know, I, I, it's just disgusting that we would have been, our government would have been enticing children to get vaccinated by this uh, not vaccine, by this gene therapy a toxic substance that people have decided to take um, without really fully understanding the consequences. And, and one great takeaway from this was that Mr. Rocco Galati was in attendance at my request to come and speak at the event. There, there is a recording online available for those listeners that want to view it. It's available uh, through Bright Light News covering that event. And uh, some of the words that he had indicated were were very, very resonant with the, the things that we need to talk about. I've become quite friendly with Mr. Galati over the, um, I'd say the last month, uh, just coincidentally through, through our first conversation together, it just happened to come out that we both attended the same elementary school at the same time and we were in the same class. So um, that was rather unusual. And I think that was a, a real catalyst for advancing our friendship and our, our discussions moving forward. So I've had a considerable amount of conversation with him over the last month. And um, he is quite, quite confident that uh, these issues will be resolved, uh, perhaps not at the initial stages, but uh, at some point these issues will be resolved, that this is a complete flagrant violation of our charter rights and one that uh, He's confident that the courts will eventually see our side of this. Mm, well, that, well, that's interesting. And <clears throat> certainly uh, the case that I'm involved with, with Rocco, uh, and, and my specific argument is uh, against the travel mandates and, the, you know, the fundamental basis of the mandate that the, that the government needs to prove is demonstrate the data that you utilize to arrive at your decisions to lock down Canadians and invent these ridiculous measures. Um, you know, we don't have excess deaths, you know, as a, as a fundamental measure. And so demonstrate what data or, or, or what information you use to arrive at these decisions. And, and, you know, clearly I don't think they can. And that's where the whole narrative begins to fall apart. And, and you know, amongst that, uh, the other 19 plaintiffs, uh, there's a gentleman in Vancouver. Um, I used to go to his restaurant on a regular basis. It was a fantastic uh, venue. Uh, you know, he had to shut his places down. This is something that's been around for almost 20 years. 
uh, you know, t- tremendous financial loss for himself. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to see some level of retribution uh, come of this, you know, when this, when it happens, you know, like you say, maybe several years down the road, but I, I think this is uh um, this is a train coming down, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, the government thinks is coming is a train headed their way. Um, this is something like Rocco says, they probably can't stop, uh, unless they get to a condition where, you know, perhaps they're really, the, the goalposts are completely changed and they begin to eradicate some of our laws. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see or happy to hear rather that Rocco doesn't think that we're going to get to, to that level. Um, but, you know, that's that's definitely one of my fears that, uh, you know, given the fact that we've essentially been lawless in Canada since March of 2020, uh, you know, will the rule of law come back to play or, or the, are these tyrants uh, and these puppets going to continue their their sort of path of destruction in Canada um, and continue to usurp the rule of law here? Well, we do still have... Uh components, I say components of our rule of law, it appears that just about every one of our constitutional rights has been violated at some point or other in this game over the last, at least for the last 16 months or so. Yes. Uh, Ever since the mask mandates first came out, but I can tell you that uh, what is required here, there's no question what is required is a multi-pronged approach. You know, we are, we are essentially dealing with a war within this country between the, uh, the people, the medical community, and the government. And uh, we clearly see and understand the science. The science is being ignored by our government. It, the data is not being uh, delivered or produced as requested by numerous people and numerous agencies, numerous times, uh, province to province. Uh, and, and, you know, without even getting into the issue, which perhaps we can cover at some point is why, um, at least one particular province, any province within this country, hasn't at least uh, requested a uh, an independent review or investigation on these issues. You know, they're all operating in lockstep, of course. But um, so what we do is we utilize the legal system uh, to push back, you know, and um, I think taking this into a court constitutionally and fighting it, of course, we understand that's going to take a considerable amount of time. So it appears that uh, one avenue uh, is based on these 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 mandates, these coercive measures. There are a number of groups, and I will say, uh, right from um, students going to school or uh, workers, anybody within the workforce, and right up to police officers, um, who are quite upset at these coercive measures are starting to push back utilizing the the other side of the legal system and that is the criminal courts. And so there are a number of people I can tell you here in Ontario and elsewhere in the country that are looking to attend police stations and file complaints, criminal complaints of extortion and assault for these coercive measures that have been used against them. And clearly the conversations I'm having with uh, individuals within the policing community across the country is that they feel that 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 is uh, that is a rightful criminal offense to complain about? If you're if you're the victim of coercive measures, then uh, of course take a look at the information that you have and how you were coerced and what the documentation says. And if you feel that uh, that the uh, offense of extortion or assault applies to you, then certainly attend your local police station, detachment, division, or station, and make that criminal complaint. 
and ensure that you get a case number generated. And if there are multiple individuals associated to that work environment, then they can utilize the same case number and get on as an additional complainant and um, proceed that way. People need to know that, you know, you can't just push people around and violate their rights. Now, I understand in Quebec and Ontario, the governments have just walked back the mandates for people in the healthcare profession, indicating that it would no longer be a requirement. But that's not stopping the hospitals from continuing down this path and, and just continuing with the mandates. So uh, if, if, depending on where you work, you feel that, that uh, those measures taken against you, the way they were written up is, is coercive, you're certainly within your right to attend a station and make a criminal complaint. Now there's a method to doing that, a suggested method. Um, I don't suggest you walk into a station and uh, start telling the officers what the crime was. I suggest that if you realize that a crime may have been committed, that you present the facts, you present the evidence that you have. And, uh, you know, one way to do it is, is if you want to discuss the, the nature of a rape and you say, you know, if, or, or uh, let me, let me walk that back for a second and just say, let's say it's sexual coercion. So if you're in a workforce and you say that your employer is, is demanding some type of sexual gratification, uh, in lieu of not terminating your employment, would that be an illegal thing? Would, would, would that be a criminal offense? And see what the officer seems to think of that. And if they say, yeah, that would definitely be extortion. You know, you can't do that. Okay, well, it wasn't a sexual thing, but it was about getting this needle in my arm, injecting a substance and uh, that doesn't have any long-term data as to its its effectiveness. And uh, it's not something at all that I would ever want to put in my body for my reasons. And it's very concerning to me. But if I don't do it, I'm going to be terminated from my employment. How is that really any different? Yeah. You know? yeah. And and uh, so, so I see that uh, there is case law setting precedence on that. And I think it's very important that this is the course that people take. You know, we do have a legal system. And if this legal system that we have, uh, some people may not like the fact that it takes time for us to get through to the courts. But if the system stops working altogether, if, if our if our arguments or our um, rationalization and understanding of science is not going to be listened to, even when we present it, we, we have overwhelming science to present. If that's going to be ignored, then what is the alternative for people to do? When their voices aren't heard or listened to, then do we even really have democracy within our country? Sure. Well, and I think at this point, we could probably even be looking to uh, prosecute assault charges or potentially even manslaughter or murder charges based on what has happened with some of these injections. I mean, here in Kelowna, there was just a report last week of a lady receiving her second dose. And, and as the needle came out of her arm, she had a stroke and, and uh, you know, uh, transported off to Kelowna General Hospital. And of course, none of the, um, the healthcare professionals, and I use that uh, term lightly, um, attribute her stroke to the, the injection. So- Well, of course not. Of course not. Why, why would they? Michael, yeah. if I shot you in the head with a gun and you were laying on the ground, and then I came back a couple of weeks later and shot you a second time in the head. It, it's not actually considered a firearm death until two weeks after the second shot. So you'd have to die two weeks after the second shot or later 
Okay. Does this make sense? Of course it does. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, a death from a firearm is a death, you know, at the time I pull the trigger and you die there, there it is. That's, that's the death right there. But in the case what? of a vaccine, we have a different definition. It's two weeks after the second injection. Yeah. This which of course has been, yeah, it's been invented. And when we have, again, with the, the mounting evidence, which, you know, is coming out of our neighbors to the South, uh, about the injuries to, to the youth in terms of the myocarditis and pericarditis, um, the fact that our health authorities and our medical professionals simply ignore or negate the this d massive data pool, you know, I think all of them, or or certainly in let's say in the instance of this lady, uh, her family should be looking to name every single one of those persons within the chain, including Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix and and John Horgan, on this, you know, it's either murder or manslaughter or assault charge for knowingly subjecting their loved one to this procedure. And, you know, there has to be some level of checks and balance that, uh, you know, the government, I wouldn't say the government is there to protect the population, but certainly the government should not be in a position where it's harming the population. And that then becomes a criminal criminal action. And if we look at the situation that we had in the late 50s with the, the swine flu, uh, the media was up in arms with 12 deaths and they, sh they shut the program down. So we, we do have a precedent uh, in recent time uh, where a similar situation has occurred, yet you know, we're, we're far beyond 12 deaths. Uh, you know, I think in America now the VAERS is, is tipping 16 to 17,000 uh, people with actually uh, have died. The numbers are much more complicated to arrive at in Canada because of poor reporting. Um, but that, you know, I believe that there, there has to be uh, the beginnings of some criminal actions taken here. And maybe that's our route uh, to pass, uh, to move past this is, is where people are actually held accountable. Um, and, you know, I guess at, at some point, are these tyrants going to continue to push this agenda if their freedom uh, or their lives are at stake uh, because of their actions and their, their mandates and, and motives? Well, there's two interesting points on what you just discussed. And the first point I'll talk about is negligence and criminal negligence. So in criminal negligence, it's, uh, it's a result of something that a person has done or something that a person has failed to do to take protective measures. Okay. So if I dig a hole out on the front yard and it's 10 feet deep, and, you know, and, and it half fills up with water and I just walk away and I leave it there. And it's some children come walking along and one of them falls into the hole and drowns and they can't work their way out. Well, that's criminal negligence because I dug a hole, I created an unsafe environment and I, I should have known, a reasonable person should have known that you, you must cover that up and protect that in some way so that somebody doesn't come along and fall into that hole. You can't just leave it open. And that would be an example of negligence from something that that uh, you didn't do. You know, you didn't take the ne necessary protective measures. And on the other side, there talking about the the timeline of of what would be defined as a vaccinated person. You know, that definition of a vaccinated person uh, comes from. Um, quite frankly, I'm not even sure of of where that definition. Uh, you may know better than I would as to who who would accept responsibility for the definition of vaccinated means two weeks following the last injection. But in the criminal courts, you know, it doesn't matter what that definition is. 
did you get the jab or didn't you? And if you got the jab and, you know, within a short period of time, let's call it a day, 24 hours, 10 hours, five hours, at some point uh, in, in a very short period of time afterwards, you died. And it appears that a number of people are dying within a short term of this injection then the courts aren't going to care about their definition of vaccinated or unvaccinated. Did, did they get the jab or not? Similarly to a gunshot wound to the head. You know, was it a gunshot wound to the head or not? It doesn't have to be two weeks after the second round went through your head. It was, it was a gunshot or it was yeah. an injection. So, so people need to understand that, um, you know, there, there is, you know, there's evidence right there that somebody's getting this, if a perf perfectly healthy individual is, is going to come forward, get an injection, and then within a few hours or a day or two uh, succumb to death or serious injury, then that is, is, a, is a piece of vital evidence associated to a criminal negligence charge. Mm. And when people at the top, people who may want to say that they didn't know, the issue is, should they have known? should they based on the position they're in should they ought to have known and that was that is where the threshold would be and clearly we're seeing a lot of deaths we're seeing it short shortly after the injection and we're seeing that our uh, health ministries should know this if i know it and you know it and we don't work in the health profession God help us if they don't know it because they should and they can't use that excuse that they didn't they should be on top of this all the time, twenty four seven. Well, and, and the same would go for the MDs and and um, our our mutual friend that we we met uh, when you were here. Uh, her doctor, uh, even though she has a history of vaccine injury now and, and concussions, and she has some lesions in her brain, um, uh, she's now looks like she, her employer is looking to mandate her vaccination, uh, COVID vaccination, for her to remain working in the hospital, and. Um, her doctor flat out said, I'm not going to give you an exemption and I recommend you get the shot. And so again, as a, as a medical doctor, you know, not that I have a great deal of respect for 98% of them because they're clearly just, uh, you know, they're, they're there for the money. They're not discharging their duties for the benefit of their patients. And they continue to sing the, the mainstream narrative. There's so much scientific evidence from reliable sources um, indicating that this isn't safe, that uh, for them to continue simply fearful of the retribution of their college, um, rather than on a case by case basis offering an exemption, um, I mean, there, there, that's you know, again, to me, that's that's a criminal, that's a criminal action. Um, so, if if the if the police, I guess we, got, you know, a couple things here. Obviously, the police are looking to support themselves and their members. Um, against getting these uh, the mandated vaccinations, and that's for their either for their own reasons um, of not willing to succumb to this measure, uh, as well as you know they're not happy uh, to uh, enact illegal orders. Um, so if if we're not seeing our police forces uh, pushing for charges against these individuals. Is there a means for individuals to create a, a dossier or a case uh, to, to create a criminal charge that they can then either present to police or present to Crown on some of these issues? Well, the, the best process would be to um, bring together the information that you have, all the information that you have, 
and attend a police station to make your complaint that way. And there can be cases, and there's there's no question that it's happening. Some some officers and some departments are proceeding with uh, initiating an investigation, and some are not. Uh, they'll they'll. I, I believe their command staff would say things like, "Oh, that's a labor board issue. It's not it's not something we're going to delve into." But you know, quite frankly, it is their responsibility to at least initiate an occurrence. And uh, take some course of action because it's it's pursuant to the police services act. You can't you can't uh, approach an officer and have a, a, a criminal complaint on an issue where they don't take any action whatsoever. That's a neglect of duty. So it's incumbent upon the police to actually engage and initiate at least uh, listen to what you have to say and take a look at your information and and document that that conversation. Document the information that you're bringing forward. They can't just brush you off. They do. They're ne negligent of duty, so that that's one methodology. But if if somebody finds that they're not getting any uh, traction that way, then by all means, um, members of the public can lay a charge on their own by simply filling out a form one. That that's called an information. That's the name of the form. It's called the information. So uh, under the criminal code, you would fill out an information, which is essentially a summary of the information that you have. You just summarize the information and then you, you can attach to it an appendix, which would be your statement or the statements of other people or additional information. And you would walk in and see a justice of the peace and say, you know, I believe that this is uh, this coercion has led to uh, an offense of extortion or assault. And you should look those up under the criminal code. And, you know, ultimately you would be the, uh, the judge of whether this applies or not, whether it applies to you or not. And this isn't, this isn't uh, giving legal advice. This is just uh, indicating how the protocol of laying a charge operates. This is how you do it. And this is how the police officers do it. And, and civilians can do it uh, the same. And you would walk in and see a justice of the peace and you would present the information that you have with your all the details to a justice of the peace who would look over what you have and then that justice of the peace would make a decision and say yeah it looks like you have enough information here to proceed with you know we can proceed with laying a charge against this individual uh, for whatever this offense could be or the justice of the peace will say, no, I don't believe you have sufficient information here to warrant that. Mm. And uh, that's how the process works. But it, we're finding that in parts of Ontario anyways, it's very difficult now to get in to see a justice of the peace. Uh, well, that, that's that's very convenient, isn't it? Otherwise, I'm sure they'd be inundated with uh, civilians presenting charges. Yes, it is very convenient. So we, we have another situation here locally in the in the town just south of us here in Kelowna, um, Penticton. There was a lady that we were on the phone with whose uh, sister was in a psychi psychiatric um, center. And I guess she's she's had a troubled life and has, has been in such a center for quite some time. And um, it appears that she's been double vaccinated uh, without her knowledge. And um, the second dose was administered... Um, she was, she was, uh, let me see, I get the story straight here. She was up for a day pass, uh, which she was denied. And, uh, she began to become despondent because of that. Um, which is, yes, you know, rightfully so she'd been looking forward to getting out and getting some fresh air. And, um, so she began to act out and, um, the staff gave her what she thought was a sedative. 
And she was still had a high level of anxiety about half an hour later. And, and she'd gone to back to the nurse's station and said, you know, whatever you gave me isn't working. I'm still feeling poorly. And it's like, oh, that wasn't a sedative. You were given your second vaccine dose. And very shortly after that, uh, she became non-communicative and um, she hasn't spoken since, which I, I gather now has been almost a month. And her sister subsequently has removed her from that facility and is, is uh, taking care of her at home. Uh, but we're, and I brought this uh, situation up with uh, Ted Kuntz from Vaccine Choice Canada, and uh, he's very alarmed by this, and he figures it's not a singular case, and has uh, recommended that uh, you know the 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 family seek legal um, legal counsel and 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 look to speak to the police about this, uh, because clearly that's an illegal act. Um, so in, in if the if the local police are not willing to move to charges on this this again would be something where the the sister could um and she has a very detailed set of notes on the whole situation so she could put this into a dossier and present it to a justice of peace to uh, essentially you know look for some criminal action to take place here yeah that shouldn't be necessary what should happen is if her dossier is significant if there is evidence to suggest that an assault occurred by injecting a, a substance then the police, uh, it is incumbent upon the police to conduct an investigation. That's not something she should have to do. I mean, in this country, we, we, we are not required, nor should we conduct our own criminal investigations. That's the job of the police, and that's what they should be doing. So I can understand, though, if you're presenting your um, what you believe to be a thorough dossier and the police look at it and say, you know, it's it's really missing the key element components that we need to actually proceed with a charge. So there are a number of elements to the charge, you know, the who, what, when, how, where, you know, can, can we prove all these points? Can, can we substantiate this information and or collaborate this information? Now, if there's enough to go on, they should initiate an investigation. And from that point on, it would be, you know, attending the location and then taking, letting people know that are involved. Hey, we're conducting a, a criminal investigation. You may be a witness. I need to interview you. I need to get a detailed statement from you as to what happened, including other staff members within that facility. And that's how it rocks and rolls. And, you know, let them do the work. They're professionals at it. They're very good at it. That's what we do, you know, in policing. So let them do all the work. You'll get, you'll, you'll get better results, more professional results, but you know, if they brush it off, um, you know, I suggest before you go in there, before anybody goes in and attempts this, you'll have ideally one kick at the can to do this. So when you do it, you really need to compile as much information as you can uh, with the dates, times, who was present, all the details, and then present that to the police as a package. And uh, hopefully you'll have enough information just to get the ball rolling. That's what you want to do is get the ball rolling and then they can take over from there and, and, and see how it flies. Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, there is now a, a culture within the police forces where not everybody is on side with uh, our counter narrative. And our, our mutual friend out in Revelstoke has been ostracized as, uh, you know, being a, an unvaccinated dirty Jew and, and I won't work with her and this type of thing. So I guess it really depends, too, if, you know, if you go to the precinct or the or the department and present your information, you're not really sure which member you're going to encounter. Is it going to be somebody with a friend? ear to the situation or somebody who thinks that, uh, you know, your position is uh, dangerous to the public uh, and, uh, you know, should, you should be 
I guess, seen as less than, and I'm not interested in, in what you have to say. So that, that obviously is an issue that we're facing. Well, given the, the substance of the example that you just gave, uh, there's no negotiation on that. You know, whether you are pro-vax or anti-vax or just uh, all about being informed about the vax, doesn't matter what your position on that is. In this country, we do not force vaccinate anyone. We cannot force a medical procedure on anyone in this country. Uh, so far, the, the furthest the government has gone is the coercion associated to that. You know, if you don't, this is what's going to happen to you. But the government is not you know, banging down your door and jabbing a needle into your arm against your consent. They're not doing that because it's illegal and they know that. So there is no excuse for that to happen. None whatsoever. That is a criminal offense. If what you told me is actually has happened, that is a criminal violation. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, the the government's response to particularly the healthcare workers um, <clears throat> around here, you know, October 26th, there was a series of them terminated for their uh, decision not to uh, take the, the jab. Um, and we have we spoke with a number of, of uh, nurses who had banked time off, they had sick days, they had holiday days. Um, and they've all been let go with no pay, no eligibility for EI. And I think that has been a bit of a sleight of hand on, on the part of the government as well. There, you know, here we have these frontline healthcare workers that uh, were hailed as heroes, you know, mere weeks ago, and now considered to be villains and cast onto the street, um, minus what is owed to them, uh, plus any sort of semblance of of uh, decency in terms of providing them with EI benefits that they may have been paying into for twenty years or, or longer. I mean, to me, okay. also, that, that's another criminal uh, criminal action on behalf of the government. Michael, we need to go back to 2019 and the SNC-Lavalin issue. You go back to 2019, and for the first time, we had a, we had a member of parliament, in this case, the prime minister, um, directly interfere with the judicial system that we have. And up until that point, We've really not ever had historically in our country, we've never had a parliamentarian interfering with a judicial system. That was sort of a very, very taboo hands off. You know, you don't play around with the judicial system because uh, clearly that's a, a case of obstructing justice and obstructing justice is something you don't ever, ever want to do. You don't want to play with that system. Justice is supposed to be an impartial system. It's not supposed to be political. There is a political component, unfortunately, that that political co component should be removed, definitely. But in this case, you know, uh, it's somebody that the prime minister had put into office as an attorney general and was then removed from office and given a different position because the prime minister did that because he didn't like the answer he was getting. And that set a precedence in this country to say, you can screw with the judicial system and you can you can essentially get away with the obstruction of justice and there's no accountability. And with that lack of accountability at the higher levels in government, in policing, in the healthcare system, in all aspects of government, provincially and federally, with that lack of accountability, we are starting to see this problem evolve this problem of there's no accountability. And when you have no accountability at the top, 
it starts to like a like a disease it starts to fester downward to to the other people within the organization and so we're seeing examples now of government behavior with a lack of accountability and it's it's you know reached a point months ago where they actually now take away your rights indiscriminately with no accountability without providing information without providing rationale without providing the science so this is the this is the scary path that we are on within that we are on within this country is this lack of accountability lack of transparency and when will this end when will we regain accountability and regain transparency i don't know if we can get it back well, it's, you know, a couple points on that. I mean, number one, we've never, Canada's never been ruled by the bastard son of a South, a South American dictator. So, I mean, that's problem number one. And uh, it's interesting as well to note that this present administration was running against Harper and Harper was criticized as running the government from the PMO and not being transparent. And, and you know, I would agree wholeheartedly that this is the least transparent Canadian government we've ever seen and that what's going on, uh, not not only are the, the cabinet members probably the least qualified uh, individuals we've ever seen occupy those posts, uh, but they're also making some of the most uh, alarming decisions we've ever seen in Canada, um, you know, the, which maybe is a, a, a topics for another podcast. But, uh, you know, even even what we've seen now coming out of the Glasgow Climate Summit and, and the, the government looking essentially to mothball the, the Canadian oil industry. Um, and yet they continue to spend money like drunken sailors. I'm not sure what their plan is other than continue, continuing to print money. Uh, what is going to create some level of economic uh, activity in this country? I mean, the, the whole story of alternative energy, of course, is a complete farce and it's laughable. Um, yet so many people buy this, buy this, this trash uh, without thinking twice about it. So, you know, yeah, we're, we're in a very uh, difficult situation here in Canada. And, uh, you know, it's really the, the, this COVID problem is merely the tip of the iceberg if people don't wake up. Uh, I'm not sure if you caught the article that came out uh, earlier this week from uh, some, some clown of a doctor in Nelson who diagnosed a patient that came into the ER uh, as suffering from uh, climate change. Uh, and then 40 uh, individuals at that hospital, um, you know, an individual maybe is a very pleasant term to call them. Uh, they're looking to create some kind of um, an organization or a writ uh, to enact uh, climate lockdown measures similar to COVID to prevent uh, you know, climate change, which of course is, is ludicrous and laughable. Uh, but, you know, these are also the same morons who are believing in vaccination and that uh, ivermectin is a horse dewormer. So, you know, we're, we've entered into a very, very strange, strange time here in Canada. It's a mass hypnosis of the population. And, um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what it's going to take for people to wake up. You know, is it going to be the beginning of the administration of this vaccination to the five and 12 year olds? Uh, and Stephen Kirsch down in America, who's been a, an outspoken um, critic of the the official narrative of COVID, and he's also been supporting a number of the uh, the doctors who have been, such as Peter McCullough and, and company, who have been working on alternative therapies. Uh, but his analysis of the data shows that um, the administration of that uh, vaccine or the injection to those five to 12 may wind up killing a hundred and I think it's 117 children for every child that it saves. 
Um, so, you know, are, are we are we entering into uh, a period here where we're going to have to create a great deal of suffering and trauma for not only children, but their parents uh, before we wake up from this collective uh, trance? Well, that's a whole lot to unpack. I mean, you just covered a lot of stuff, but I will I will definitely agree when you say that this is very strange and weird. Um, not really. It, it would be if this was evolving organically in this direction. There's no question. But this isn't an organic evolution. This is contrived. This is this is the same players, the same individuals, the same NGOs, the same techniques and the same tactics that have been evolving over oh 30 years at least, 30 years that I, that I'm aware of. Let's call it let's call it 40 to, from the beginning of the tri, trilateral commission creation. Okay, 40, but you know, if I can take it back to 1890, if you really want to go back that far, you want to play that game? How far back can you go here further? <laughs> you know, certainly with the death of Cecil Rose, you know, if anybody understands tragedy and hope and, and how that, uh, that novel uh, worked its way out, you know, from the death of Cecil Rhodes and the creation of the round table group and the belief in creating a one world governance, which, which uh, is, is continuing to head in that direction. There's no question about it. All, all, all indicators point in that direction. You know, it's not a forensic review. It's just an analysis of all talking points and directives. But I mean, let's go down the list. How many, there, there are more agencies that I can't name than I can in terms of the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Group, Council on Foreign Relations. Um, it, it's just endless. Three letter, four letter agencies that are, that are created. And um, this is, uh, there, there's a much greater agenda at play here. And I find myself just recently in my, in my uh, connection with a number of uh, people in the healthcare field across, across North America, in, in, including uh, aspects of Dr. Peter McCullough and, and his, his people and his team, that um, many, many are, are struggling to understand the complexities of what we're dealing with. And sometimes you need to sit down and have a conversation and say, you know, it's not just about the medical issue. There are much, much larger issues in play that, you, you know, you got to get outside of the medical spectrum to see that there are much larger global issues at play in this. Uh, it's like um, it, it's like a, an attack of a pack of hyenas trying to tear an animal apart and take it down is what's happening to our Western civilization, our Western democracy, and the rights among all Western nations at this time, uh, being treated as a wounded animal, really. And um, so there's there's every indication that there are multiple agendas at play uh, on a global scale, on a technocratic level, uh, on a socialist level, on a leftist level. And we've seen many of those players already raise their ugly heads and come out in one form of another or another in the last year and a half to two years. Yeah. And so, yeah. uh, and it's just a constant, it's the same people, same players. It's the constant state of fear, the fear mongering, the global climate scare, uh, again, complete garbage, garbage. It's not science. Uh, it, it's completely debunked. But again, when you control the narrative, when you control the media and the, and that narrative includes not only newspaper, um, television, what's in print, magazines, billboards across your cities, everywhere you go. 
it's you're just bombarded with this um, messaging, this this constant messaging. Yeah, and I had a great conversation with a gentleman I've recently been introduced to in town, and um, his question to me was, you know, <clears throat> what has enabled them, you know, them as the all those organizations that we've just talked about, what has enabled them to be successful this time? Because of course, this isn't the first pandemic that uh, has been launched on on humanity. You know, the, the most recent one occurred during uh, Black Jesus's tenure, the H1N1, and, and uh, you know, that just, it didn't get any traction. SARS didn't get any traction. This one finally has. And, you know, his question to me was, you know, what do you think is different this time? And I think it, it is the advent of social media and the, the CIA operation known as Facebook, where we now have the sheep shepherding the sheep. And um, it has created such a level of control and um, admonishment of those who step outside of the official narrative that we, you, anybody who, anybody who expresses a viewpoint, number one, you're probably suppressed. So that information that you're looking to share is downrated uh, in uh, other people's feeds, and immediately um, that counter narrative is 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 sprung upon by trolls and and whether they're real people or not um any effort to to create real discussion or or real discussion in terms of of what other information may be out there is is crushed and belittled and i i don't think we have had that in another time and so the ability to influence people uh, to a singular narrative and really drive that narrative forward, I think really has been, has been on the back of social media. Yeah, well, I, I can't disagree with anything you've said. Absolutely. And I think what we're seeing as a result, and, and uh, you and I are examples of this, um, this, this creation of the divide between those people who can see it and those people who cannot, and we're starting to gravitate towards one another. You know, I, uh, similarly to how you and I have come together and, and to uh, actually develop a, a good friendship and those people within our circles of people who, I'm not just going to say people who are like-minded, but people who um, can really expand their viewpoints to look at all sides of the discussion. And I'm certainly one within maybe because of my forensic background, but I look at all the information and I'm very inclusive in all the information. Um, the entire global um, global climate change narrative originally struck me as um, something I really believed in and I thought was important. And I wanted to debunk anybody who was pushing back against the narrative until I started listening closely to their perspectives to debunk it and realized that their perspectives were far more accurate than the narrative. And that you very quickly go, wait a minute, you know, the counter narrative to that was, was scientifically much more compelling than the actual narrative itself. So it didn't take long to figure that out. And once you see that, once you can think critically, um, you start to find other like-minded people who think critically. And before you know it, we, we have quite a, quite a group collectively of the, Hey, you know, we're people who get it. We're, I, I don't like to use the term sheep, but, you know, we certainly can think critically and we've, we've seen through the BS. We've, we've been able to sniff through the garbage and, and uh, we have what I call discernment. There's no shortage of information, 
there's a, short, a shortage of wisdom and discernment. So you have to be wise about the information and know how to sift through it and come out with the accurate information. I don't choose to be on either side of this narrative. I choose to go where the truth is. And so certainly it's the truth that I'm after. And uh, I can tell you, I fully agree with your perspectives on that. There's no question. Now, this the other issue is um, um, the other forces at play within this issue, the other agencies that are pulling the strings. And when we do a, a close examination, now I'm just gonna use Ontario as an example. I don't know, I haven't looked at British Columbia, but I highly suggest you do. I highly suggest you look at your, your provincial agencies. So in Ontario, we have three provincial health agencies that really control the system. We have the Ontario Ministry of Health, we have Public Health Ontario, and we have the CPSO, which is the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario. And when you dig really deeply, find out, you know, how are they making their decisions? How are they coming up with the, uh, for example, the one on um, vaccine exemptions? If you look uh, through the provincial agencies on vaccine exemptions, they defer um, decisions to what they refer to as the Brighton Collaboration. They defer to the Brighton Collaboration. Well, what is the Brighton Collaboration? The Brighton Collaboration is an international network and it, its founder interests were based on economic algorithms. And that was uh, Dr. Robert Chen, who's talking about economic algorithms in healthcare. And the Ontario government defers to the Brighton Collaboration for its defined terms. Well, the Brighton Collaboration merged into what was called the Task Force for Global Health. Think about this, the Task Force for Global Health. Who, who are the members of the Task Force for Global Health? Do you want me to tell you the members, Michael? Uh, it's, it's probably Gavi, the Gates Foundation, and the rest of those clowns, but go ahead. It's the WHO, UNICEF, Rockefeller Foundation, the World Bank, the UN Development Program. And it's funded by Big Pharma, Bill and Melinda Gates, CDC, GlaxoSmithKline, Merck, Novartis, Pfizer, Siemens Healthcare, and more. Now, guess what? They have a, uh, they have a command and control structure, which is above that, and it's called CEPI. And CEPI is the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness. That's an international organization. And who runs that? Well, that's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, the World Economic Forum, GlaxoSmithKline, Merck, J&J, Sanofi, Pfizer. It, it's, it's the who's who of the wealthiest in the world, the most powerful organizations at the top that are directing terms to our provincial health agencies. Is there a conflict of interest there? Yeah. I mean, and if that's ever the fox guarding the hen house, I don't know what is. I mean, that's utterly ridiculous. I mean, that, that's, that has to be the terms of an of a investigation in and of itself. I mean, that, that is clearly not objective information for the benefit of the people. That is, a, that is information for the sheer benefit of shareholders of those corporations. End of story, period. Right. So I would encourage your listeners that depending on what state or, or province you're in and, and whatever country you're in, look for a connection between your provincial or state health authority 
and the Brighton collaboration. As soon as you find that connection with the Brighton collaboration, if they say they're referring to the Brighton collaboration, and I suspect they are, I suspect, I haven't checked for other provinces or countries, but the reason I suspect is because, you know, across Western, the, the Western nations anyways, and, and probably most parts of the world, they're all behaving in the same matter, in the same pattern. And where you might say to yourself, how come, how come they're not stopping? How come they're not reversing? How come they're not questioning this? And I believe that the, uh, the arrangements or agreements that have been founded over a long period of time through the development of this Brighton Collaboration International Network was, you know, one day when there's a pandemic or something really critical that goes across the world, we'll take control. We'll, uh, we'll get together with our scientists and our people and we'll help you out. We'll, we'll make decisions for you so that you don't have to make them. We'll, we'll look after what's in the best interests of the people of this world collectively on a global scale. And so these agreements were probably struck some years ago and now they have the hands off. Well, we've agreed to let them make the decisions. Let them make the decisions. We're not making it. They are. What kind of a, what kind of a system of governance is that for your people? This is, this is incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you know, it, it, it's shocking, Vincent, but it, it isn't. And and uh, as we sort of chatted briefly before we got on air uh, today, you know, at at the most simplest level of what's going on, um, this is the pharmaceutical cartels uh, exploiting the rest of the world for their own profits, uh, and, it, and it dials back to the to the Bush era where. You know, the, the world was run for Saudi Aramco and the Bush family's benefit um, and Halliburton, where, you know, certainly in, in um, when Dick Cheney was vice president, we really know who was running the country. And he, although he had stepped down as CEO from Halliburton, he was still calling the shots. And, you know, the, the everything that was being done in that administration was for the benefit of the oil cartel, um, which included those families. And, um, you know, of course, that ended in global bankruptcy in 08. Um, and, you know, now somehow the the ruling group has become the pharmaceutical cartel, um, maybe with a little less important puppet at the top in terms of Biden. I mean, he just sort of seems to be having a nap um, more than anything. He's really I don't think he's I don't think anyone could argue that he's calling the shots. Uh, but that's, you know, that's at, at the at the lowest possible level. And, you know, at the worst level, we have something much, much more sinister going on. So, you know, e either way, whether how far down the rabbit hole of conspiracy analysis you want to go, um, at least one has to question why the pharmaceutical conglomerates and cartels have so much influence in everyone's life. Um, even if you don't want to go one step below that and, and or deeper into that and figure out what's going on. I mean, it's it's and this this is just yet another example or, or more evidence towards, uh, you know, the reason why people should be alarmed and questioning what's going on here. Well, you know, you, you make mention to Biden, but please give give equal time to Justin Trudeau, Macron, um, Boris, all of them, all of them. Can you name me a leader in the in the Western world that has integrity, wisdom, discernment? Is a is a true leader? Well, I, I would no, but I, I would argue that they are one hundred percent all young global leader graduates under Klaus Schwab, 
And in my recent uh, interview with Dr. Lorraine Day, uh, she indicated, you know, as a question, you know, who is this guy? She said, well, he's a Rothschild, his mother with a Rothschild. Now it all makes sense because who is this weird? I mean, he's, he's a very weird Bond villain type character who has appeared on the scene more recently, although he created the World Economic Forum when he was 33 back in the 70s. And, um, you know, a strange thing for someone at 33 years of age to come up with this, you know, global uh, takeover plot. Well, he is a he is a Rothschild and, and uh, well, that and it all makes sense, you know, what, where he fits into this, this equation. And of course, as you say, you know, all these global leaders, Angela Merkel, Boris Johnson, uh, Jacinda, and I forget her last name in, in um, New Zealand, who's, you know, just an utter tyrant in that country. Um, Francois Macron, Justin Trudeau, uh, uh, Jaghead Singh, or, um, you know, they're all uh, Christina Freeland. They're all young global leader graduates. And so they are, it's not that they are, they're not good leaders as we would see them to be, but they're wonderful little sycophant puppets for their master Klaus. And, uh, you know, we all should be uh, very, very concerned about the fact that this gentleman has such uh, ubiquitous control over the world's governments. Can't argue with that. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's shocking. Yes. It's yes. shocking. So, you know, one, one thing recently that uh, this week here did give me some hope moving forward uh, is the fact that the Fifth Circuit Appeal Court struck down uh, bullshit Biden's uh, vaccine mandate, federal mandate, saying it's unconstitutional and, and illegal. So we do know that um, the Constitution of America is still in place and um, that the courts down there at least are still willing to um, uh, stand up for the American citizenry. Uh, you know, we have yet to see a decision like that come out of Canada. Um, you know, in your opinion, do we have a court system that isn't yet so corrupted that it will vote against its masters? I believe that we do. And I've, I've put that exact question to Rocco Galati when I spoke to him and he has a, uh... He has every bit of confidence in the Supreme Court. He certainly does. And, and you know, we had an extensive conversation really on the issues of the court and uh, with reference to how the system really operates, because that, that's my concern. How does it really operate? And, you know, how much corruption is there within the courts? And, um, you know, can you actually make it through from beginning to end and get a win? Well, clearly there there appears to be more influence and pressure on on the first stages of the cases, you know, where they're initially up, whether it's uh, the assignment of which judge gets the case and other issues to come into play. But then there's the appeals process and then there's finally the Supreme Court. And I had said this all along, you know, there are a lot of people that are leaving the country right now. And my argument was that uh, I, I'd like to wait and see. Uh, with the Supreme Court ruling on this, because if the Supreme Court isn't going to rule properly and accordingly with with our charter, uh, and uh, there should be no reason why they wouldn't favor uh, our position on this, because there has been no information that's come out from the government, and there isn't any. I, I and I'm I'm saying this from an unbiased perspective that I'm I'm fully willing and prepared to look at the government's position. And say that if the if the government can demonstrate its necessity, I'm certainly willing to accept it because uh, I understand that that is the way that our charter has been written. But they are required to provide the information, and it has to be demonstrably demonstrated. And they not only have they not demonstrated it, they have not provided any information. 
they have not even invoked the notwithstanding clause. So they're not even they're not even saying they're invoking the notwithstanding clause. They're just saying we're going to pretend there's no charter and let's move on the way we want it to be. So I, I have I have every reason to believe that um, there will be a significant um, win victory eventually when we reach those levels. There's no question. The question is, this is all about time. Okay. You know, it's a ticking time bomb and we're watching the clock tick away. How much time do these people who have had their positions terminated from employment, how much time do they have? How much time can they get through before they run out financially before their lives are demonstrated? I'm telling you the day before my event this last weekend, I believe there were two officers in Ontario that had killed themselves. Uh, as a result of their last day at work before they would be terminated and we're going to start seeing these suicides increase and that's that's an extremely devastating thing you have people who are going to be put out of work who have nowhere to turn financially and now we have the issue of young children being vaccinated and uh, mandates for that program to roll out so I see those as the two most grave uh, issues that we're facing before us right now, the two most emergent issues that we have to deal with. And um, these are the issues we need to push back on. And so I see that there are police officers and police uh, members within the agencies that have been speaking quite loudly on pushing back very hard in the very near future. So I'm, I'm, highly confident we're going to see some things happening very soon. Well, that's great. And, and obviously, um, you know, what has to transpire once there is a level of, of malfeasance or, or negligence or criminal intent identified, all of these people in positions of power need to be held accountable. They need to go through a trial process. And, uh, you know, whether, whether we elect to keep them around in jail, I think is a, uh, is possibly something that is, is a waste of taxpayers money. And they should probably just be swinging from, uh, swinging from trees, uh, with buzzards picking at their entrails, um, which may, may send the globalists a solid message that, uh, you know, your, your agents and operators are not welcome in Canada, and this is the this is the fate that they will receive should you try something like this again. Because if um, if, if the likes of Mister Dressup and his uh, and the rest of his clowns there are simply able to brush off this and, and think that they're either just going to step down from their positions um, and walk away from this, that cannot happen. Um, you know, all of these people who've perpetrated this uh, crime against Canadians and humanity, they have to be held accountable. And, and, you know, I was just following orders is not going to be an acceptable answer to, uh, to, from any of them. Yeah, absolutely. So I encourage all of your listeners to, regardless of what country you live in, to prepare documentation, to prepare your letters with supporting documentation, uh, to prepare a, a very vital package. And it's not very hard to put together a documented package of all the information that we're talking about, all the relative medical information. And ideally, if you can get it on, um, on a digital format as well, like with a USB stick, and include that package uh, with the digital version, and, and send it off to your attorney generals and your solicitor generals and your prime ministers uh, or your, um, your head of your police agencies, whatever the head of your police agency is, and provide that information and 
keep a record of what you've done because somewhere down the road when there is judgment day on these issues with these individuals um it'll be so easy for them to want to say i didn't know i didn't receive any information i never got it well at that point i'd like to hear from all these individuals who had mailed all these packages cumulatively how many hundreds or thousands of letters and packages and 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 data sets went to these individuals and we'll have a recording of that we'll have documentation of who sent what and when and you know it's one thing to say i didn't get your letter but when we find out that 847 packages went to the attorney general and he didn't get one or she didn't get one, um, it's going to be a pretty hard sell in court. Yeah. So I, well, I, do believe, I do believe we'll have judgment day sooner or later. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, it's just uh, a question of whether we can keep the, keep the country stitched together um, and maintain the rule of law until that happens and not have that uh, pulled out from under us. Correct. And this is the time to share, uh, share your um, resources and share what you have with those that are less fortunate because we're starting to see a, a breakdown in the system. We're starting to see a number of people become homeless or uh, at least out of work and their, their clock is ticking. They're on very limited time before they lose their homes, they lose their property and they really lose their will. And, it, and mental health right now is, is the most critical thing to maintain. It's so important to do those mental health push-ups right now to keep yourself from falling into despair. Because once you do, it's very, very difficult to get out of that hole. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the only benefit there perhaps is some desperate individual uh, lashes out against uh, some of these uh, leaders and uh, that becomes copycatted across the nation. And, and uh, you know, maybe there's a bit of a, a ground grassroots rebellion against uh, against what's going on. Uh, you know, the, the apathy at some point has to stop. And, and uh, you know, the, maybe it, it takes uh, someone going postal to uh, bring everybody else uh, uh, to the front to to um, defend defend Canada from the tyrants here. Well, so far, none of that has happened. And I really, really hope, I really pray that we don't get to that point. But if it does, it would just be history repeating itself again, because it has happened in the past. And that's that's how revolutions begin. And that's how empires fall. And that's how leadership changes. And we certainly do need a change. Um, you know, I pray for peace and hope it doesn't come to that, and that we can resolve this before that happens. But ultimately, if it doesn't get resolved, um, that is most likely the way things end up. Yeah, yeah. And certainly, you know, Canada has uh, a rather peaceful history and, and um, maybe, it, maybe it would be a shame to blemish that. But then again, if it becomes a rallying point uh, to never allow this to happen again, and blood is spilled uh, for freedom, because of course, you know, freedom isn't free. And you know nothing. Nothing makes me more angry than seeing these the, the 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 folks handing out the poppies wearing a mask. And you know if if you if if those fallen soldiers would see the the absolute travesty that our society has become, um, I'm sure that they'd be turning in their graves. I mean that's just it's it's abhorrent to see that kind of thing. And I, I've also heard stories now locally here of uh, people being thrown out of the. Um, uh, the legions for not being vaccinated and so forth. And, you know, there, there wasn't a single member of the armed forces that, uh, that died uh, to allow this level of tyranny to transpire in, in, in our present day society. So that, you know, the, those people need to be looking at themselves in the mirror and slapping themselves in the face and asking them what, asking themselves what the hell they're doing. 
Yeah, very true. And and unfortunately, uh, we would think that they would perhaps have a different perspective once many, many more people start dying around them. Uh, I just see with this big great, what I'll call the great lie that is being spun, uh, will continue to be spun. And um, I don't see any acknowledgement so far that our governments are, are having on the cause of these these deaths that we're experiencing now. Although that being said, a lot of data is coming out indicating that the majority of people within the hospitals now are the fully vaccinated people. So yeah. that should be an indicator to a lot that there's something going on. I personally know of a few individuals that have died from the vaccination. Uh, I don't know anybody that's died from COVID. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, so true. Well, sir, um, it's been another uh, great conversation here. Um, unless you have anything else to to share with us, let's uh, let's call it a day for today, and uh, we'll continue continue uh, conducting the good fight. And and hopefully, uh, Rocco is correct, and we we can get our day in court, and uh, Canada doesn't need to resort to bloodshed to uh, rid ourselves of the tyrants that are uh, trying to control our lives here. Yeah, and for the benefit of your listeners, there is a uh, video link. If you just check out Bright Light News online, Bright Light News, um, there is a video link to Rocco Galati's speech. Um, the the actual clip that is posted there is only about three minutes long, and that's not as beneficial as, as if you were to look at the entire protest uh, video for day one and then look at Rocco's complete speech. It's far more entertaining. Um, it's, it's worth a listen. Yeah, I'll put the I'll put the link in the show notes there. I listened to it before we got on air, and uh, he's uh, he, he's an interesting individual. I mean, very very intelligent, uh, very passionate, uh, very outspoken, and uh, you know he kind of uh, kind of reminds me of an old mafiosa that uh, simply just you know it takes zero bullshit from anybody. So it's I think he, he should be an inspiration to Canadians in terms of his fiery spirit. He has no fear, and I yeah. like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's encouraging. Yeah. Well, absolutely. thank you for having me on the show. Thanks, Vincent. You take care of yourself, sir. And uh, hopefully we see you out uh, this way uh, before too long again. Great. Thank you. All right. God bless you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.